isn't that insane like how how the world has gotten to that especially at least in this field in the in the professional writing and editing field it's just it's a liability like it's a fucking liability to say what you think about a a policy about a about uh, anything and you have to pretend that this is like his like oh it's always been this way no it has not right. you're like stop like i stop acting like this like was something that was written into the style guide or into the company handbook like 40 years ago it is like this happened like five days ago and you want me to adhere to this nonsense i yeah yeah that's I mean, that's crazy, but that's where we are. And that's why I was like, I have to do podcasts like this. At the very least, it could it could make me lose everything. But then again, I was think, I always think like, okay, so they won't give me book deals. They won't give me teaching jobs. They won't give me awards. I'm like, well, I'm already not getting those things. <laughs> They're not going to just give I mean, them to, Also, like who says know? that you're not getting, I mean, you will, is there, I don't think that you're blacklisted. You know, I don't think there's a reason why, yeah, like why you're not getting certain things, except for I think like what we'll get into, I think there's just like a surplus of people, um, especially after the blogging boom in the 2010s, who were told that anybody could write, you know, that (laughs) anybody could do it. Um, Yeah, like that, in in a way, it was kind of true that like all it really took was savvy marketing, like good search engine optimization. Any like all you really had to have was you know media and internet savvy. It did not, or even just like great photography skills, and that was also true. You didn't. A lot of these early bloggers weren't really writers at all. They were just very, very good at kind of beating Instagram to its game, like early on. Yeah, and I, I would, yeah, I mean, I agree with that totally, yeah, how, yeah, there are good parts where we kind of, yeah, anybody could do it, anybody could do this now, but it's also, the business model itself is drying up and all that, so yeah, I, I, I know it comes off when I talk about it sometimes as, yeah, me being more, like, bitter that, like, I'm thinking that, like, I'm being blacklisted, or, yeah, you know, I don't think that at all, yeah, out there, listeners, <laughs> I don't think that at all, I, I, I do you know, I understand it's difficult too. Like I've been trying to get books published the last four years and yeah, it hasn't happened, but like, that's normal. You know, like that's the norm is trying for years to get your first shit out there. Like, it's not just going to be like, Oh, you have a book. Well, let's publish it right away. You know, nobody's going to do that. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, I, I am, I am close. And when I was, you and I've been chatting for a little bit now and I, I, I am reaching that point where I'm I'm close to giving up and being like, well, maybe I should just start like serializing some of the stuff I have on a Substack or like self-publish it or whatever. And I was like, well, you know who I would hire to edit? It would be Sam. <laughs> it would be you. Yeah. Well, one, that, you're the only you, one I know, but like still. <laughs> I don't think that's true either, but I'll take the compliment. I am heavy, heavy, heavy bored. services yeah oh no but i will say that i 
so one reason I'm sure you remember the freak out over Substack in 2021. So Substack now, like the, whoever there is, I forgot who their director of partnerships is, but whoever they're doing is doing incredible work. They have brought almost every single person who was ever interested, any sort of like interesting writer, you know, in any in any genre, like across like not just media, but I think also just like literary, just authors. A lot of them have subsex now. And I think as somebody, um, I think she, like, who is it? Is it Sharon Alexi who is like serializing one of his novels on subsex? Like there are quite a few people doing that now. But I think you remember the freak out from a long time ago. And, you know, it was just like, oh my God, like it's becoming a hub of fascism because, you know, like they will reduce it. Like, you know, because one of the key, um, you know, one of the key tenets was, you know, free speech rules always. Right. And, you know, that free speech kind of like freewheeling culture is what produced some of the first Substack Pro people, not just, you know, Michael Tracy, who I work for, but um, Matt Iglesias is one of the only people to kind of like go from the 2000s blogging boom, blogging boom into Substack. Like he went from blogging at Think, uh, think was it? Yeah, Center for the Amer for American Progress, Think Progress, to doing what he is now. Um, he was one of the first people offered a deal. And then you had Andrew Sullivan, who you know, he was at New York Magazine during 2020, treated terribly, um, got, you know, was given a, a deal, I believe, I'm not sure. But I think that's kind of what the freak out was all about. All these people who, you know, they're very talented, more senior colleagues, kind of legitimized their position. Like, it was prestigious to work at a certain outlet because you had someone like a luminary working above you, or you had someone editing you that was just, you know, maybe that's what drew you to the place. And but then now, you know, when a lot of those people started migrating over to Substack, they, you know, it was like, Oh, my God, Oh, my God, Oh, my God. And like, and I, and I kind of get it. Because before it was like, you had these people who'd be bringing in all these, like, who would be bringing in revenue subscriptions for the parent outlet, and they broke off on their own. And then also you had like people like who I work for just kind of iconoclasts who managed to stay afloat on their own and contribute and build a life for years like despite all of the backbiting despite all of the you know like maybe he's too controversial we don't want to publish him um and he has a massive platform and it's not because you know he's a fascist or whatever it's because <laughs> like or it or you know and like yes i understand that some of these people can like have very spicy takes but it's not even because of that um he was able to kind of do that because he, he was doing kind of like what that article said, the nylon article, even though he's not an it guy or an it, a literary it girl. He was able to, you know, build an audience like from an unusual method and then use that to springboard into serious journalism. Yeah. Would you uh, would you say that like the, I'm not part I mean, obviously, there's political angles to why people f were freaking out about Substack. But you, would you say it was more like the I think the political arguments against Substack were hysteria, the more real reason that people were upset was the business that was like the last nail in the coffin of like the the old business model for for magazines and new papers at least absolutely yes um and i mean i kind of have a scrambled timeline now but i but think we around do, I, yeah, we all no, do, no, yeah. but like at this point i think like at one around that time there were you know another round of layoffs and like uh maybe huff post somewhere and then another round of layoffs somewhere else so, you know, while these people who are like are supposedly, you know, they're publishing wrong speak, they're doing things that you're not supposed to be doing and all this. And, you know, all these people had kind of built brands not off of doing that, but like by being original thinkers, for, you know, for decades. Um, 
they were like, okay, well, fine. You know, this new company came and they, they gave me a contract like for a year and they all left. And then, yeah, I think that's exactly what the freak out was. It's like in a time with all these mass layoffs, like some of these young reporters, some of whom are like, I'm going to enter a word, like a word in here. Some of whom were work woke, um, <laughs> you know, they, like they, they, they're, you know, like their etiquette that they just kind of like sprung on some of these places. It didn't work anymore. Like they couldn't, they didn't have that power over their senior colleagues anymore. And their work was kind of delegitimized because the people who made those outlets great were leaving. So, <laughs> yeah, like. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you hear, listeners, you hear the voice of our of our guests today here giving us a rundown of what you can expect here as we get into our this episode of Heavy Board. And welcome to it. I'm Andrew Wittstadt, uh, and I'm joined today by a special guest, Sam, who's come here to talk about Otessa Mosfeg's My Year of Rest and Relaxation. And I think we have the same version of this because this book's so popular, right? So we, whatever I do on the rundown here is I always just like, you know, what version we read, the publisher stuff for the book nerds. Yeah, I got the same one, the kind of mass market paperback, <laughs> uh, published by Penguin Books in 2018 originally, right? But this version was published yes. in 2019. And we're going to get into it here today, listeners. And um, I always like to just kind of start with you know, your experience with this book, kind of your history with this book or Otessa or literature in general, you know, just give listeners kind of an overview of, um, before we even get into the book, really, just like your history of it. When this came out in 2018, I kind of hesitated to buy it. Um, at the time I was living in the New York area, I remember seeing it in the window of McNally Jackson and like a lot of my friends were reading it and they were like, you should read it. You should read it. But I didn't want to because I had read the blurb on the back of the book and I thought, okay, I, I'm not ready for this yet. It's a bit too biographical maybe. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, so like the protagonist in the book, um, I also spent kind of like, I had a six month period of rest and relaxation. You could call it that. Um, in, on the Upper East Side in Yorkville, maybe a block away from where um, the, the whoever wherever she lives, and a lot of these you know experiences I remember having. I remember just kind of I could see Carl Schurz Park from my window. I could kind of see Roosevelt Island, um, and you know I remember like waking up and seeing the Brearley girls go to school and thinking how old I was and just like how ancient. At the time, I had taken. Um, I graduated college a little bit later and I had to take some time off just to kind of deal with a physical disability. At the time I was um, subletting this place uptown and I just remember just kind of feeling numb. I had this vision of like, you know, just like scribbling, like writing, like as the sun was pouring into my like white box and um, that I was renting. And I had, I thought it was going to be like, you know, the start of a new life. And it, it, it really was not, it was more like a purgatory time for me to get organized. So I I didn't want to read this at the very beginning because I was like, oh God, like I don't want to think about that time when like I was probably not, not the greatest friend to some of the people who cared about me or like when I basically was just like, I was sitting there watching like dopey TV shows and like kind of thinking like, oh gosh, like what am I going to do after this? Like I've got six months before I go back to school and <laughs> can figure things out. So that's my history with it. But then when I finally read it, I was very stunned. Like I, and I was very impressed. Um, I thought that, you know, so something that I kind of get from a lot of these books that take place in New York and they're written by millennial women is 
there's always maybe it's because you know Otessa is a very different author so she has this kind of like deadpan unembellished prose and that made me appreciate it because usually what you get with these is the protagonist kind of like makes it a point to signal something like either I don't belong of this culture of this or of this city or there's some sort of just like waving like they break the fourth wall somehow or they like wink at the reader a bit like you know like well this isn't me and like she doesn't do that it's darkly hilarious and like there's there's a lot of like she's sending up a certain kind of culture that was present you know in the very like late 90s early 2000s but it's just not in your face. And I think that that's what makes it different from a lot of the books released during this time. Oh, absolutely. And I, I feel the same way. And I, I was, we were chatting a little bit about, yeah, and I want to get to this, about how this book was kind of a breath of fresh air reading it compared to like all the other kind of contemporary novels and stuff that come out. And I, listen to regular listeners to this will know that I do not keep up with the latest and greatest kind of stuff that comes out it's just too much for me so like if something gets a reputation and then that, then I'm like okay I'm interested you know uh so I only knew the book by reputation as like you know this is Otessa's big hit this is her big kind of you know she had a book couple books before this but this was her big kind of like breakthrough into the mainstream and all that and everybody talking about her book and, and her stories and made her career i guess you could say although she had a career before this but yeah you know so i only knew it from reputation and then yeah the next question is usually yeah how did it read for you just impressions and just impressions i mean it was i i reread it again before coming on here and i forgot how just like delightful it is and just how how close that she like she truly understands like she I don't want to say that she experienced this, but she understands that feeling of kind of like being numb, being in purgatory. Like just even like the prose is very like just on the page. It was a very easy read. It was a smooth read. And it, you know, these days I feel like there's a lot of just kind of I like purple prose that takes me out of writing. Like it's overly descriptive. This was just like, I was very, like within like the first couple of chapters or like first couple of pages are like, um, I was right there, like in the protagonist's, like, you know, badly decorated apartment, like <laughs> on that pottery barn couch, the sweat stains, like with like a, like videos going in the background. <laughs> yeah, and I will say, I guess it's <clears throat> it's uniquely millennial in that way. Even though I guess it's talking about a time. If you're hearing this, it's because you are listening to the free public feed of Heavy Board. To get complete, uncensored, uninterrupted, full access to this podcast, become a subscriber at patreon.com slash heavyboard. That's right. Heavy Board is made possible by subscribers like you. For less than one cup of coffee per month, you will receive private access to uncensored, full-length episodes, jerk shop, heavy bonus content, subscribers only AMA episodes, bonus extended interviews, and more. Come join the conversation today at patreon.com slash heavy I guess there were some millennials that were approaching like their 20s <clears throat> at, the, at the new millennium. Where the generation starts. It starts in 1981 and then it ends with... Um... My year, no, a year after me, 1994. Okay, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like, 
Yeah, and I mean, it does capture something. And I guess the Gen Xers did this too. Like the Gen X writers were the first ones to kind of talk about that numbness, the kind of disappointment in the things you're not supposed to be disappointed in, like the things you're supposed to be excited about and like looking forward to and you should be happy. Association. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so... It's interesting that the like the yeah the last two generations that are at least that are adults now and and I guess Gen Z is just becoming these adults here. We're the ones that felt this like you never saw like boomers or the silence being like oh I'm miserable because everything's just boring. It was like I'm miserable because I'm in poverty or because of the Great War or like whatever it is, or <laughs> Vietnam or something. But like here it's just like uh, everything's great and I'm bored. Like it's very like, unique. <laughs> yeah, sorry, it is. On. No, no, no. I was going to say, I don't even think like it's very clear that it isn't just because she's bored. It's because that like she she was expecting meaning out of things, especially, like especially after kind of having this, you know, I guess tough childhood where there wasn't much of anything, you know, like she had all the status markers and she had just kind of like um, her best friend Reva says, like she has all this stuff that's supposed to make her happy. But she's not because, I mean, at the time, I think like it kind of, you know, symbols or symbolizes the beginning of a zeitgeist in a decade. That was kind of the complaint about the 2000s, right? But, you know, it was like raunch culture and everything was superficial and plasticky. And like the entire zeitgeist was kind of like a bright uh, pink, like a hot pink, like the cover, not a millennial (laughs) pink. (laughs) Like it was a very, you know, it was a different time. Like when you, when people kind of like reminisce on the 2000s now, like, my siblings who wear Y2K stuff or they talk about, you know, like, of course they don't remember because they were born in the 2000s. Um, I think that that, like, they forget, like, why we landed in our wretched decade now. It's because, um, no, I mean, no, really, because for a long time, I think especially, like, leading up to 2008, like, the, that was the complaint from everyone. Like, everything is too superficial. Everything is just kind of, like, hard and, like, shock. Like, it, like you know, like, if you hit something, it will bounce back at you. It was very much like no one like had any regard for the future and like the past is just like you know an afterthought everyone was just kind of like going 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 it was very materialistic decade um i think that she kind of captures that very well yeah absolutely yeah without without like like being obvious about it but you just kind of you see like how like these people who were born in the early 80s you know how they came of age i think this is something like we didn't experience (laughs) Yeah, because we were, I was, I guess at the year this takes place, it takes place from like 2000 to 2001, basically, right? Like, um, and I guess for me, I would have been in middle school at that time, you know, like 11, 12, the 9-11, I was in sixth grade, <laughs> you know, Miss Magar's English class when the towers went, you know, went down and then they made the announcement, like <clears throat> all that, but yeah i mean and i think there's there's some confusion about it now too hindsight's it's always easier to look back and like oh that that decade had you know some some real a lot of numbness to it even though it was we kind of are nostalgic for it now just because everything's so mm, censorous or oppressive in certain ways and it's it's unique ways that they're doing that that it is in this culture now but it is like, I think, you know, she's not the first writer to write about that period. <clears throat> it's Or maybe she was like the first to get a huge, big, popular book from it in, the, in recent years. But there's a couple now that I've noticed, like a couple books that have come out recently that are about that year, like the 1999 to like 2001 era. Like people are just like really nostalgic for that time right now. And I guess it's okay, it's 20 years removed, so it makes sense that it's coming back a little bit with trends and things like that, but... 
Yeah. It, it doesn't re- like repeat itself, but it rhymes. I think that might be another, I think I, you know, I talked about this recently with a friend, like a lot of what's happening then is sort of happening now, except that we don't like have the same distractions or even culture. Now, like if I were generation Z and we're about to approach a war, maybe, and we're seeing the phrase acts of evil pop up again, I would want what we had then versus what we have now. I would want, you know, the auto-tuned pop music and less internet, less social media. So you're not seeing all of this play out all the time. You know, right. I would want, you know, I would want just kind of that. I wouldn't just call it carefree, but just, I don't know what you would call it. Someone called it just like unhinged capitalism, but that just sounds pretentious and weird. But I guess just like a sort of materialism and like apolitical environment that just, you know, shadowed or like shadowed over all of this. Yeah. And it's, I, I always, it, I always point to social media, I guess, being the thing, I guess that's the big thing people are reaching, but it's hard to write about this time right now. It's hard. So if she were to set this in present day or, you know, a couple years ago, it's really hard to write about maybe because of what we're living through being so absurd and so obsessed with, yeah, like the political angle first and foremost on all fronts which is really the issue. And that's, I know, I mean, most listeners to this know, like I come at it from that angle, whereas I'm like, the the politics isn't necessarily the problem. It's the emphasis on politics. That's the problem. It's the putting that yes. before anything else, whether we're talking about visual art, you know, literary art, like any movies, TV shows, it just, it, that's a forced framework that I'm just desperate to get everybody to see, to be like, we don't have to put the politics first. Like, <clears throat> always exceptions for books that are explicitly political, you know, that if it's written into the book or it's in the project or the art piece, of course you have to talk politics, but it just, you know, it, it becomes first from foremost and it makes it so that everybody's a little on edge and, and it makes, it's the tension. It's the tension that everybody feels right now. It's the, it's the main source of any disagreement right now is political and it's just and especially in the writing world, I think people like to deny it. They like to pretend it's not as bad as it is. Whereas like we're in full blown red scare territory, you know, basically like, and we've been there for a few years now, like, uh, but I, I guess the good news is we do see it kind of <clears throat> shifting away a little bit. And I think writers like Otessa are part of the reason that's happening, you know, like, because she's just consistently refused to engage with that kind of stuff and just be like, no, I don't have to engage with politics first i'm going to do the writing first the story first and then you know people can say what they say and uh, just having a big writer a big great american writer saying that over and over again and not budging even though she's you know it's not she's like hardline on it or anything she's never been like oh, i refuse you know but just casually doing it just just the way she does it like we need that we need we need good american writers to just not do it just not participate in the politics first and just do their thing and the more that that happens the more we're going to see i at least i I like to think that we're going to start moving away from this bullshit and get to yeah more people like otessa writing more books like this that are great and fun and cool and uh, a little bit edgy a little bit uh provocative like this used to be the norm And I said to you when we were chatting and I said in the beginning of this episode, listeners, like it was refreshing to read this book. It felt like I was reading a book from like 20, 30 years ago, almost like that was my first impressions, like first couple of chapters. I'm like, whoa, this thing feels like it's from another era. And I get she's setting it in the 20 years ago, but it's like 
it, it just this is how books always used to be. They always used to be a little bit funny, a little bit edgy, a little bit provocative, maybe a little racy in some scenes, some 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 hot sex scenes or whatever people like get uneasy about or whatever. And it just used to be the norm, and everybody just knew that novels were supposed to be this. They were supposed to be refreshing, provocative, you know, interesting, titillating in these weird, almost even taboo ways. And it was okay because it's just a book on it's just words on a page. It's just a fucking book, and like we, this is how we get <laughs> so that we just do this. And I think the fact that she's just did it unapologetically is is just great, and she deserves all her praise, listeners. You know, sorry, I've been talking for a while. Yeah. I was just I was just agreeing with what you said. It's very raw, and I think one other thing that maybe people are not used to. I I noticed this is it's kind of detached. Um, people might disagree with that interpretation, but I think what we had maybe for almost ten years, eight years is, and it was brought about maybe by Lena Dunham and Girls. I'm not sure, but I really this, like that. Yeah, I like that. What <laughs> the idea that it might have um, Lena Dunham and Girls changed the detachment. Sorry, keep going. Exactly. But I'll, I'll follow up. No, 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 for sure. So, but yeah, I think what happened is they saw that, and then all of a sudden, just oversharing about everything became the norm, especially in even in literature, like even in just fiction. You know, all of a sudden, like it wasn't just online confessionals or like fun kind of gross-out BuzzFeed articles. It wasn't just that anymore. Um, Lena Dunham, I guess, found a way to intellectualize that. But I think a lot of people didn't realize that that's just who she is, the person. Like, that's just what her work has always been like, because that's what who she is. Um, so that's what really kind of struck me. Usually, I feel like this would be like a full-blown confessional. And like, she would just be like, if, you know, someone from, if Lena wrote this, or if any, like, one of the prop of um, other kind of contemporary fiction writers wrote this book, I think you would get that more. You would get you know, it would be a lot sloppier and warmer, maybe. It, it wouldn't be cool and detached. And, like, there's a part where she's describing, I mean, like, every time that she describes going into her, like, um, sleep hypnotist, basically, um, it's just completely, like, you feel like, you feel like she's watching herself do it. It's very clinical. It's very, like, it's, it's very crisp and deadpan and just, like, unadorned. And I can't remember the last time I read anything like that. Right. Right. And, and just like the detachment, like you were mentioning, like the, it, yeah, we've already said it's very millennial. Yeah, it is. And then I think the the comparison to girls is, is accurate. It's, it's important, I think. And I, I, you know, everybody says this, especially it, some no. of the circles, yeah, that we <laughs> hang out in and stuff. Some of the circles that like how we got to know each other were just, everybody's obsessed with girls and, and for good reason. It was a very pivotal show. And I remember watching it when it was airing and being loving it. And Dunham captured that millennial ethos, like to the men and women, like people think, Oh, it's just girls because you know, it was the five main characters were all like this group of friends, but like the boyfriends, like they, they captured the like Adam driver, you know, captured the kind of quirky New York, like millennial boy kind just, it, it captured what everybody was doing, this oversharing. And like you said, it's, it's, it's confessional in the kind of the tradition of confessional poetry and literature that we've had for, you know, like almost 100 years now, listeners. But it's like, it, it does make it, it's not just that. It's not just like this kind of secrets or she's telling some deep, dark secret or whatever. She's, she's like you said, almost <clears throat> removed from it in a way to where it's... Um, like the character's almost judging herself too, like as she's 
as you're reading through the narrator in the fictionalized version. I know like we do poetry and fiction on this podcast. I know the poets that listen to this know that you it's 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 a taboo to assume that the the speaker is the writer, right? Like where the narrator is the writer. So poets are well versed in that. But I know fiction there's this tendency to always be like, well it's the writer. She's writing exactly about herself. And it's like, well, not exactly, right? Like she's a little removed from it and you know, we don't know. Maybe there's pieces that were biographical, but we don't know, you know. And you, yeah. it's bad to assume it, but yeah. There's uh, the first thing I stood out was because it opens on and about her like kind of job in the art world, right? Like the New York visual art scenes to be specific listeners. And, and, and it's kind of always been a ripe area for satire in literature. Like you go back like several decades and everybody's kind of talking about, yeah, like how kind of stupid and ridiculous it is and, and all these rich people that have no taste and are just spending millions on like garbage art and <laughs> Sam's nodding along and she's like yeah I lived it bro <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely and uh just like one of the descriptions on page 33 um first first full paragraph on page 33 there with the, which she's just a, kind of describing the art cowards that like the main oh. character is disgusted by I, I don't know if that's 33 in mine. On 33 in mine, she's talking about, and this is what I actually really appreciated because I feel like she's the only person to do this honestly and without any sort of like trace of resentment. She's talking about lit bros. Lit bros <laughs> with air quotes. Like, um, I feel like this is a trope that I constantly gets rehashed every like what? Like four months about oh, yes. David Foster Wallace and these guys. And I'm just going to say it. Do I like these guys? Absolutely not. I do not like these guys. This is the first time that someone has actually said, you know, or given a valid reason for them. It's not just like, oh, God, like, they're just so pretentious. But they're like, he walked in wearing, like, a beanie and carrying infinite. Like, instead of just, like, having this image or, like, uh, just a trope that people haven't experienced. I feel like most people who complain about these guys have never actually, you know, experienced these guys. They just know that they're supposed to dislike these guys. Um, you kind of have you have this brilliant paragraph, like a, br a brilliant graph in the middle of the page. <laughs> it's totally true, true. And the, the part mm -hmm. I was going to read was just the, that first two sentences. Please do it. The, the, the worst was that those guys tried to pass off their insecurity as sensitivity, <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> they would be the ones running museums and magazines, and they'd only hire me if they thought I might fuck them. <laughs> and I was just like laughing to this because it does capture that that scene that 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 the insecurity as sensitivity is one of the most like i guess i call i'll call it a truism because like it, it's it's it captures that kind of as someone who was a former sad art boy kind of or that's you know between years to early 20s coming into this scene she captures it she knows detest has been around these people and like yeah like you can just yeah. there's something fake about it always there's something that's like a little bit performative and it's all about this kind of deep-seated insecurity and blah 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 you know i you know whatever but yeah that's why she even says why and i think it's because i think a lot of these guys it's not just for the love of books it's not just for the love of art they kind of form their off like their identities in opposition to someone else who they always kind of see as their permanent antagonist and like she says that on the on the page before it um you know i'll, I'll read from it actually yes, please please yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So I think in the middle of the page, an alternative to the mainstream fat boys and pre-med straight and narrow guys, these scholarly, charmless, intellectual brats dominated the more creative departments. As an art history major, I couldn't escape them. <laughs> like, yes, I think. That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
dudes reading on the subway, reading Proust, reading David Foster Wallace, jotting down their brilliant <laughs> thoughts in a black moleskin pocket notebook. Beer bellies and skinny legs, zip-up hoodies, navy blue pea coats, and army green parkas. <laughs> it's incredible. It's, it, it's the it. first time when I've seen the trope, and it's like you know that it isn't born out of resentment or even you know. And it's every time I hear someone complain about these guys, it's like I don't think you've actually experienced this. I don't think you've been on a date with one of these guys. I don't even think you've been in a workshop with one of these guys. I think you just know that you're supposed to dislike them. She gets it. Like she knows why I think the original trope came around. Yeah. you know the yeah <laughs> and that hits it does hit because it, it hits that that truism that little bit of that kernel of truth that we always seeking in fiction and things like that yeah like and it it, it kind of even describes you know I, I bring up lindy man stuck culture or whatever it does describe this kind of stuck like because this same person still exists they're still reading the same books on the subway right like they're still <laughs> they're still trying to pass off their insecurity as sensitivity you know like they're still trying they're like she says of the one afraid of their own dicks afraid of themselves and it does capture a certain millennial male psyche i think where there is these levels of insecurity that nobody talks about because there's a bunch of reasons for that i guess but it is kind of there's a uniquely male insecurity wrapped up in that i think that she's just putting her finger on in this nice long description that you heard sam read and i read parts of it it's a couple paragraphs here just a great section there in that chapter uh yeah just the and then the fact that the navy blue peacoats in that article that came out, we're recording this on uh, October 26th, listeners, and that article that came out, I guess, was it a couple weeks ago now, maybe a week ago, with the David Foster Wallace. It was just another one of the basically David Foster Wallace, Wallace yeah. <laughs> sucks and the men who like him suck. And and it it almost seems like they lifted it out of this chapter, <laughs> the, the Navy blue I... peacoat specifically, because it was referenced in that latest DFW piece. And everyone oh, was just like... <laughs> Who even wears it's, navy blue peacoats anymore? <laughs> I, we're at the point where I mean, I will say that I mean, I, there's a you know, there's a word for this, and I'm not. But it seems like all of these tropes are now just like being strung together and revived by people who know nothing else. Like I, I have seen you know people kind of act this out. Like you know, would be lit bros who haven't read David Foster Wallace. Like things are a little bit different now in English programs and MFA programs. Like, I, I don't know what they'd be wearing. I, I, I don't know, like some like um, hype beast brand hoodie, maybe. I, I, I don't know. I have no idea. But, you know, I'm thinking of like a 19 year old, a 20 year old here, someone about my brother's age. But um, it just seems like, again, like I do think they kind of may, might have lifted this. Like they know that there's someone like some of these like women who are on booktop writing these articles. So they're supposed to hate or someone who they're supposed to define themselves in the opposition to and like who better than these guys and i do get it it's just that you know the guy has changed and evolved a bit and i think that the literary landscape which people say is very female dominated now it is i think a lot of it actually kind of came about because of these guys i don't right. think it was entirely down to to um some of the women in publishing yeah i think you're absolutely correct and i think there is like people tend to forget that too because we are so many years removed from maybe like the turn of the century there but it it they're always a reaction there's a reason people are reacting even now you see people reacting like it's not usually because of nothing although sometimes it is now with social media and the propaganda that gets spread everywhere but like yeah it's always a reaction there's something that causes you know for every action there's equal opposite reaction right like there's just something that happens and this is true for culture uh trends in publishing writing you know art making like it just 
there's always a reaction. There's I'm going on a podcast tomorrow. Somebody asked me on to talk about it's nerdy poetry stuff, but like, <clears throat> and we're gonna, you know, he prepped me on basically what we're gonna go into is yeah, these kind of evolution of trends throughout, and I, you know, how the novel affected poetry basically in the 20th century and all that, and how people write it. It's just a reaction, like people rejecting the generation before them, like rejecting like the boomers rejecting the modernists and stuff and the you know that that era and and the silent generation and and yeah it's just normal part of it and there is that kind of reaction to that was the dominant presence at the time in the early 2000s was that david foster wallace loving mostly male even though it was starting to become more female and more parody at that time in the industry it was still dominated by that type of guy and then obviously there was a huge reaction that lasted a decade or two to that and but i always say like my friend who i've had on this podcast before shout out to lee listeners go listen to lee madeline's episode (laughs) here and buy her book um she loves dfw and I, she always talks about this because she's a huge fan and she's a woman that's a huge fan of him and she always kind of rolls her eyes at those articles that come out every four <laughs> or five months i'll send her a text whenever they come out we'll, we'll chat about it a little bit and and <laughs> she's you know she's just saying like people when she lived in new york and was working in publishing she always told on that episode listeners go listen to it uh they were she was saying that like everyone around her at the publishing house and stuff We're like oh my god avoid guys like that avoid guys like that they just bring up dfw on a date and that's all they want to talk about and she just said like that never happened to her like <laughs> she's like i don't think i ever <laughs> sat across the table from a guy on a date where that happened she's like but for some reason everyone around me was acting as if this happened all the time and this was like you know i think by the time she was doing that was like 2010 2011 like <laughs> in new york and the kind of the publishing scene and she was just like, I don't know, like, is it, is it an older trope that still exists? Or I guess is what I'm getting at, or if like, if it's even fucking real, is it just like a fake thing at this point? Or like you said, with the kind of, pro- it's kind of a revival here where people are starting right. to get this kind of dude bro, they call it, or bro lit or whatever phrase you want to use. There's starting to be a little bit more of a revival of that because it's been 20 years of reaction against that. And now it's like, okay, of course it's going to go in cycles. But yeah, really good point, Sam. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to like start chatting, but yeah, this is why oh, no, Sam came please. on. Yeah. No, I like, I agree with everything you said. I think that's a good point. But I also was going to say that I don't know who David Foster Wallace was, you know, forming a reaction to because sometimes when I read people and they talk about the publishing industry, you know, I'm just like, you know, what was I reading? I think it actually, it was um, like a lid hub piece or maybe a book riot piece. And it was from a long time ago, but it was very, they were talking about like, as if it were still maybe like the late mid century, like when they were talking about it being an old boys club. And I was like, okay, so I can think of James Wiley or is that his name? It's not Robert. It's Andrew Wiley. Sorry. Yes. So, you know, we've got one geriatric on deck. Um, Like who, (laughs) Who are the other people who were who were who is left from this culture of like St. Paul's to the Ivy League to the publishing house? I want to know who these people are that are apparently among us because I can I cannot think of one person who wasn't gone, forced out, retired. I, I don't know what they're talking about. But I do think that those people who did exist, that might be who these um quote unquote like these lit bros are reacting to. They right. wanted to have a different Yeah. And then also, I mean, I do think that you know, sure, David Foster Wallace um, had some problematic elements, but a lot of these writers, and I think this is what's also new and like why things are sterile. 
a lot of writers aren't upstanding citizens, you know, like we're kind of any artist is not like it isn't until recently that you had this. And um, I think it was Tina Fey or maybe it was Amy Poehler who said it. Um, A lot of like guys in their in their um, I guess in their era who went into comedy, they were they were like Norm Macdonald or like they like they were like um, quote unquote like fail sons. They kind of like drifted around they had, they were edgy. They were angry. They had a large ship on their shoulder and comedy was sort of their outlet. And then meanwhile, the, you know, the women who went into comedy, they were always great citizens, like kind of, you know, Tina Fey called herself like a drug free achievement oriented virgin, adult virgin. Um, <laughs> like they, they were like, they were great daughters. They made Dean's list every semester. They were kind of like, they were very goody goody and almost uptight. And like comedy was their way to let loose. Um, and I think that's the thing, like, um, you, I see this trend remarked on a lot, like Megan McArdle, who works for the Washington Post said that, you know, and, and you kind of see it a bit here in, in, in Otessa's book, like the protagonist gets into Columbia by writing like this, um, you know, unreadable essay about, um, about like, it's just like a bad prompt about, I think, like technology and art. Uh, I forgot the name. Of, <laughs> I, I have to go back into the book. But it was like very unreadable. It sounded almost like some of the semiotic work that came out during that time. Um, and, you know, that was the path that Megan McArdle said she took. She was like, you know, I wasn't a straight A kid. I wasn't like I had a high SAT score, but I was an underachiever. And, you know, I was too busy writing opinion columns um, for my local newspaper and, you know, slacking off to do homework. And I got into pen anyway, you know, and like right. it wasn't and like she, her parents weren't you know, weren't particularly rich. She, they weren't donor class people. Um, but I think, you know, she, she clearly is a brilliant person and she managed to kind of like make her career just through writing. Um, and I think like, you see that in the protagonist too. It was like, I like sleep walk, walked my way into Columbia. That doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. And I think like that also, I mean, people say, and I, I think in a way that that is good. Like I think meritocracy is good, but I think that's also what kind of had like brought us this new class of writers and artists who are maybe more like what Tina and Amy say they were like very just like you know great like upright uptight people right. who like let loose through comedy and you know really found their voices through comedy or like through another dimension or like through through art they they were a different kind of person absolutely <clears throat> and there is that and people get it's become more in the discussion like the last hundred years, basically or last 50, 70 years with um, class and writers and all that and how it affects, you know, people be like, Oh, if you're a lower class person or you were raised lower class, your family had less money for education and all these things like, you know, kind of the striver class of people, upper middle class to middle class to upper class. If you're hearing this, it's because you are listening to the free public feed of heavy board to get complete uncensored, uninterrupted full access to this podcast become a subscriber at patreon.com slash heavy board that's right heavy board is made possible by subscribers like you for less than one cup of coffee per month you will receive private access to uncensored full-length episodes jerk shop heavy bonus content, subscribers-only AMA episodes, bonus extended interviews, and more. Come join the conversation today at patreon.com slash heavyboard. And it just, 
they're telling me how the lower classes have a harder time getting in. And that's true. That's true. But it is also like, it's a recent thing. As I always like to say, like people look back at the can and be like, Oh, well, these, all these people were wealthy with trust funds. It's like, yes, they were because before like 1950, like industrialization, if you didn't have a trust fund, like if you weren't a, from a rich family or something, you didn't have time to sit around and contemplate life and write these like modernist style texts. Like they were all wealthy from wealthy families because nobody had time. They were like working their ass off, you know, to survive. And more recently you could be getting in from a lower class, but it's still the same thing. Like it's still the same who buys the most books. Well, you know, the middle, upper middle, upper classes, like that's who buys the most books. And it just, I don't know, I guess they're, they're just, my point is just that it's always looked at the wrong way when they start twisting these kind of classes as to who's allowed to <clears throat> write about books or, or characters or, or, or different classes of people or anything like that. But you also made a good point about that kind of the anger that these, particularly the Gen X and I think millennial and even I think Zoomers, although it's, it's very repressed in Zoomers here, uh, the anger that a lot of young men have, and it's for no reason, like there's no good reason for these, for young men to be that angry, but they are. And I remember it very well when my phrase, my phase of it came through. It's those teenage years into your early twenties, you are incredibly pissed and you, there's no reason for it like, usually, but it's just, I don't know why. And, and then you find these different things. So I, I heard a few <clears throat> smart people talking about, you know, the, the kind of new metal when we were growing up, the kind of corns, the, the stuff that was coming out, all that kind of rap metal, very angry teenage boys loved it, right? Because it, it was just a place for them to go in and they could just mosh or something, you know, like like push people around and it was fine. You know, it wasn't like a destructive thing, although I guess some people did get hurt in those pits. You know, there's always the horror stories of those uh, concert pits. Never, You never want to wear flip-flops to one of, the, <laughs> one of those... Uh, you get a broken toe. I remember I was at a Modest Mouse. This is a fucking unreal. This is completely unrelated. I was at a Modest oh Mouse show. And I love Modest Mouse is my favorite band. Like I, I fucking worship Isaac Brock. Although I admit their last couple albums, they, they've fallen off. You know, they're almost 50 now. They're old, you know, but. Uh, no, but I, I, I love them too. And I listened to them religiously for a long time. I guess. <laughs> yeah. And they were, they, they were playing a set. And this was actually in DC. I was at 930 Club in DC. Because oh. I was still living in Baltimore at the time. And I went with a bunch of friends and my wife. Uh, we weren't married at the time, but we were dating still at that time. And it was like, these, all these people, they started playing dance hall. And so I went nuts and started dancing around. You know, that's only like a 40 second, like little thing they were doing on stage. And then everybody around me, this one guy's like, oh, I'm in flip flaps, man. Like, come on, blah, blah. And I was just, I just stopped. <laughs> and I looked at him. I was like, I was a little drunk. I was like, I don't give a fuck. I was like, get in the back. <laughs> get in the back if you have flip flops on, you motherfucker. Like... And I guess I'm a little intimidating when I'm like, <laughs> like talk to people. Oh when no, I was like drunk. no, for sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, and he just kind of shut up after that. I was like, yeah, don't fucking talk to me, bitch. Like, <laughs> your fucking flip flops. Oh my toes. How old were you? How, like, when was, was that? Probably like 24, probably. Okay, like, yeah, like... Almost, like 10 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> just a dumb, angry kid. Yeah, that just like, don't you fucking tell me anything. Get out of my face. But yeah, it's like a modest mouse concert, like of all things. I think I just have other, I guess, albums of theirs in my head. Like you mentioned them, it's been such a long time, even though I do love them. And I thought randomly of like, you know, wild packs of family dogs or like something like so that. Important. To Boston. I was like, 
but I was like, what, you know, like, what are they moshing to? Like, of course it would be what you were talking about. Yeah. I was. <laughs> and some of their earlier stuff, like before that, yeah, before the moon in Antarctica, when they had that really kind of Seattle yes. grungy punk influence to where they were just kind of lo-fi four track recorders in a shed in that trailer park. Yeah. <laughs> that's, they have some more like <laughs> kind of punky shit to mosh. Oh, speaking yeah. of like what we were talking about with, I guess, like stereotypes being reified. Um, I saw somebody the other day, like kind of one of the same kind of people who like to talk about lit rose talking about modest mouse. And I, I, I laughed. I had to, it was like, you can really tell when modest mouse, like, you know, stopped doing heroin. Like, that's why the last <laughs> laughs were so bad. I was like, oh God. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm a millennial, so I didn't even like, you know, when that, when, when, when the first couple albums dropped in like 97 or whatever, like I wasn't listening to him then you know I was like nine eight years old like I wasn't listening to indie experimental rock but <laughs> uh, and I came to it later so like people shit on them for the good news for people who love bad news the float on and then the we were dead but like those are the first two albums I came to and I fucking love them like I think they're great like and Classic. even that it has a little bit of that apathy to it it has a little bit of that kind of gen x millennial kind of numbness to like a lot of those lyrics a lot of those songs a lot of the kind of even this is a weird experimental stuff and, and they weren't the only band doing that, but they did become like kind of the most mainstream that did that. But yeah, I'm glad modest mouse got brought up. I like, uh, I say <laughs> listeners guess when you're a guest on here, just bring up everything that I love. Yeah. Modest mouse, Vonnegut. Like, <laughs> I'm uh, glad to hear that you're a fan. I, you know, it's just funny. Like what they, I guess for me, because I was younger than you were like when they came out or like when I started listening to them, it was usually in conjunctions with bands of their polar opposites. Like OAR would be on the playlist next to right. modest mouse, you know, like you hear like some like absolute, I think like so much, it'd be like some very reflective song, but maybe it was like off of one of their other albums, not good news, but um, like so much beauty and dirt. It'd be that next to like, you know, like what's that song? Like, that was a crazy game of poker where it's like the seven, like a seven minute cut of like, and I said, Johnny, what you doing? Like, it would be next to that. It was like, you know, right next to Modest Mouth, which was experimental rock kind of brunch. You'd have this preppy band that came out, same, like with that right. kind of emerged or like became popular at the same time that they went mainstream. So they were grouped under that for some strange reason. And I know Modest, just because that of the Seattle, they got grouped in with like Elliot Smith and stuff when they were coming out, like this kind of, for some reason, you know, like it was just all this scene was being, it was very, it's, I guess maybe that's why people are nostalgic for it. We're talking about the kind of turn of the millennium. Modest Mouse was dropping albums. Elliot Smith was dropping his albums, like these kind of huge icons in the music scene that are still huge. And just, yeah, maybe that's it. Just subconsciously, I associate that time with, yeah, like the, the Elliot Smith and the, and the, and the Modest Mouse and the, and the and, and then all the pop that was coming out that was very rock focused before we switched to the electronic music i think like even madonna's hits britney's hits you know all these pop stars they all had the kind of a like old school rock pop kind of aspect to them before it started to transition and maybe that's part of the nostalgia too i don't know but like those songs were just so i mean you know that kind of I've heard people, like that bubblegum kind of, I've heard people call it bitchy pop. And it's mm -hmm. like, you know, I, I I feel like that's almost disappeared. Like sometimes I think maybe like Rihanna put out some bitchy pop, maybe like a couple of albums ago, like maybe like um, 2013, like whatever that album of hers was, um, with like cake on it. I think that was probably like her bitch or no, it was loud. That was her bitchy pop album, maybe. But people kind of miss that, like that kind of um, just, 
you know, I think at the time the critique was like, oh, this, is, this isn't even music. Like it's meaningless. It's just like something bass that I can hear the other tune. And I think like that kind of is what people needed during a time when, you know, after 9-11 and we were at war and you didn't want things to be just like to feel everything. If you were someone who read like Matt Taibbi back then, and this is why I laugh at people's depiction of, of him now, you know, you were probably, you know, you were a freak. You like nobody right. else is doing that, at least in my area. Like you were like, you know, kind of numbing yourself. You were nodding along to like these auto-tune songs in your car. Maybe you were listening to Modest Mouse and whatnot, but then you were probably also reading Type B. Like yeah. there is there was a distinct subculture that, that all that was a part of. And the mainstream culture, like the monoculture, was very, you know, it was it was not serious. It was not right. intellectual. That was like the that was the critique everybody had. You know, it was mass produced. It, it was Howard Stern talking about like, like, you know, border making borderline like sexual. I don't know, almost sexually harassing people on air, but nobody <laughs> cared. Like, yeah, like, <laughs> right. right. Yeah, I like that you bring and, up TV too. Are you a big TV? I, I mean, I've always read him, and I like. I'd say that I like. I definitely am a fan of his. But it's just very funny to see. He was one of the very first people to start writing on Substack. Right. And yeah, and I actually have like, you know, I haven't interacted with him before, but, um, you know, he was, I think like his reporting, like he was like one of the few like Gonza journalists who to really do it in the modern era, right. like his Rolling Stone reporting really defined that. And now I think a lot of the people who now slam him are trying to, you know, they're trying to replicate that. They're trying to copy that. But they just, they don't have the element that he had at the time. I don't even think he has that element anymore. It's just a very different you know, the culture has switched. What are right. you pushing back against now when the when, you know, so called counterculture is mainstream and nerdy? You know, like different oh, yeah. people took it over. Yeah. Oh yeah. I like that you say that too. Like the 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 nerdiness. My favorite Taibi era is the pre Rolling Stone era. And again, I wasn't reading it at the time oh. because I was too young, <laughs> but like I give my students this essay almost every year here. You know, I do change it up, but the his one about why sports are for losers that he wrote for like men's journal, you know, in like 2004 or something, you know, like, like 2002 or something. And I, I, he was writing for all those men's magazines and he, he's writing about like how hot Anna Kornikova is and like all that, like, it was just great stuff. Uh, and I always give my students that one to why sports are for losers. Cause it usually gets quite a reaction, you know, from, from the men, especially in the room, the kind of, who, you know, I, it's always interesting you see a student, especially a male student that would, not very interested, you know, they're going through the class, but they're not like, you know, passionate or anything. And then you give them that Taibi essay, kind of, it's usually around the third essay, I'll give it to them and they'll, the the reactions that you'll see them light up a little bit, usually because they want to argue against it. You know, they want to say, well, I like, you know, baseball or I like basketball, you know, like, I, and uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, tell me more, you know, like they get kind of animated about it. I'm like, yeah, only Taibi could... And, you know, Taibi's a huge sports guy, loves sports. And then, but he just wrote this great kind of piece, you know, 25 years ago, and it still holds up. It's great. Yeah. Hard to find, though. I have to, like, keep a PDF of it because, like, the old website or something, like the archives, you know, you have to go through. Like, to be. I don't have it. Like, I used to keep, I used to have, like, one of the first issues of N plus one, you know, here in, like, my little, like, apartment. I, I don't have that anymore. Yeah, please send me that PDF. I'd love, I'd love to have that just, you know, in the archives. Yeah. Yeah, I know you. You and I chatted about N plus one before too. You've you've mentioned uh, N plus one and uh, just kind of when we when you and I were chatting and we're just kind of you know lamenting the state of literary magazines and things like that. And, and 
yeah like how important those kind of magazines like n plus one were and, and and at that era too like at that era where the the first internet magazines were starting to pop up and with that the literary magazines and fuck yeah shit we're going so far off of it too but no I, I, well I no there's a way to circle it back in fact i was just thinking about it Please. like um, when the like when you know my year of rest and relaxation talks about you know do pop the art gallery you know of course, like you were saying, like, it's like right for satire. It's such a like, it's like, oh, my God, like, I, I know these people. I've lived it. But at the same time, you can kind of see that, you know, there was a bit if it didn't work out there, like if she didn't go into like her, you know, year of sleeping, either there was something of value produced or like there was always a new gallery or a new venture being started. Like at that point, you know, the city, had, it wasn't like, you know, even after like Bloomberg became mayor and like I was too young, I didn't live this. But I think one people like what's like kind of missing now is when, you know, people are like, oh, like in like New York used to have a scene. It's like, well, okay. And like, you know, it used to always have violent crime. It's like, okay, so this is a little bit different. There's crime now, but then it's also expensive. And then also the scene is gone and dispersed. So it's, right. you know, you, you know, you can't really just like write it off and be like, oh, this is just, you know, one debt, like drawback to living here and being part of a creative community because everything's dispersed. I think like the 2000s is when that kind of started, um, like, you know, not just like, you know, people being dispersed, but then also it was a year time of opportunity. Like p things were popping up everywhere on the internet. There was M plus one, all if, you know, this gallery and the book shut down, there'd be a new one next week or, right. you know, a lot of, and like she even like, she goes to that party um, on the Lower East Side and she kind of talks about who she saw. And like, even though the people there sound superficial, you kind of know that they aren't like that wacko i mean the guy that she ends up giving her keys to and like letting him do things um i he it turns out that he like he, like he was an artist even though he just wanted to shock people and get a superficial reaction like he you know he was at least putting in the effort i guess right. absolutely the way that they like kind of the fakeness of it and the and the how you can use that to your advantage too like that's something I've actually picked up on in the internet era too here with this podcast and just, you know, trying to market it and send shit out and just not that you're trying to shock people, but just the kind of like you, you have to make that effort to market yourself. However you, and you do have to be a little bit conscious of how that's going to play out when you're marketing yourself, you know, in these, how that's going to play into your reputation. And, and I'm already noticing things now where people are like, oh, well, you, you like that a lot. And I was like, mm, I don't. But I guess because I talked about it like, you know, three or four for three or four episodes in a row. So people are like, oh, you're obsessed with this. And I'm like, well, I'm not. But, <laughs> you know, whatever. But yeah, I do want to hit uh, beauty, uh, especially the theme of beauty, because I think it's very important in this novel, especially like this type of kind of like careless or effortless beauty, right? Like this kind of, and, and then like kind of gearing that towards how it's like an asset and a burden maybe, or yeah. What do you think? You're quite like, you're spot on. And in a way, like what she's talking about here, like right now we have this kind of resurgence of quiet luxury or, you know, and I think what's really funny is that I hate the term generational wealth. I think it's vulgar. <laughs> I think it's vulgar. I think it reminds me of a lot of socioeconomic class where people take it out of context because they feel, you know, they feel uncomfortable or they feel insecure talking like using, I guess, like a more like using vernacular or just saying like he's middle class, she's working class. They have to talk about so it's like, you know, place it in like, oh, no, but because of her income and then also her social like they, they have to pull on terms of sociology. But 
I think that, you know, it's both an asset and a burden. And here it kind of shows that, like, you know, Riva is constantly trying to keep up and, you know, she's, you know, she's doing it as much as she can. I think that, like, you know, that's something I related to that heavily. But I think people are always trying to chase down, especially in the literary world, just like this, you know, when you saw it in that Lit It Girls article, um, like this effortless idea. And I think after like a whole era of oversharing and, you know, uh, confessional pieces and books it's starting to kind of come back into fashion like this is this is what people were reacting to before i think with lena dunham style stuff that's why i was like oh like you took something different from my point you know like they didn't like the idea of these you know it girls being aloof and kind of withdrawn even like you don't see otessa or emma klein or any of these superstars like great writers wade into culture war nonsense ever you know like you don't see them right. you don't see like um right now like they are partnering like i think otessa partnered with a couple of fashion labels that were very you know sleek and understated they're trying like their brand building looks a lot very different and i think it's not even about you know quote unquote generational wealth i think it's the idea of putting forth an effortless facade where people might assume that about you like to to, to succeed now to become one of those and I, I yes i do think it's like both a burden and both an asset and it sounds like like for this but it sounds like for this protagonist it was like i don't know if she's as pretty as she thinks she is you know like maybe she is <laughs> but it also sounded like you know she it sounded like this is someone who was just like very withdrawn and because she was gorgeous like she assumed that that was why i don't know yeah right. there is that uh yeah and I, I always talk about this i i always use the professional sports example but it is you know, it's true for, I think, beauty and like being put together at the same time where we people don't like to see the effort part of it. They like to see it. It's sexy when it looks like you didn't try. But like in real, so as like professional sports people, like, oh, it looks easy. But like, that's incredibly hard. And these people have been working for decades to be able to do that with their bodies. Like, you know, yeah. and it just but it looks effortless when you're watching it and you're like, oh, yeah, it's kind of like a show too. Like when you're watching a play or whatever, you don't see the part that took months, you know, putting the sets together, the actors doing the scenes over and over again, the, you know, the work that it takes, the effort. We just see the after, you know, the work after all that effort, the beauty after all that effort. And then we're like, oh, you don't even have to try to be beautiful. How dare you? And then we hate them for it. You know, like, oh, they don't deserve it or something. But that is, I think it's also very our generation, right? Like this kind of, like even now the discourse, right? It's always about who's hot, right? Like in, I, the social media changed things to where people can say, they, everybody gets to tell you what they think right away in real time. And that includes, they get to say, you know, ad hominem or talk about your appearance in real time. Like that can be used against you in a lot of different ways. And it just, <clears throat> you know, the hyper fixation of it, like we're, uh, maybe we're more fixated on it now than we've ever been. Like, I don't know if that's just my bias, you know, how would I follow online or, but I think it is important and it's, it's to this story and to really Otessa's overall body of work too, right? Like the beauty is a big part. And I get, I guess, kind of female coded to some, some, ex some extent, yeah. but it's, it's <clears throat> becoming more, not just female either, because there's a lot of men that put a lot of effort into that. You know, the fillers that men are getting in their faces yeah. and hair transplants. And uh, I do know a little bit about this, <laughs> like the kind of manosphere stuff with uh, the, you see these men, yeah, the, I, who's taking steroids, who isn't. Hey, 
Would you believe there's still an extra hour of conversation left? Well, there is. And if you want to hear the full uncensored episode, you need to subscribe at patreon.com slash heavyboard, where you will receive full uncensored episodes like this without any interruptions, ads, or anything else. And that's for subscribers only at patreon.com slash heavyboard. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe today and join the conversation. Heavy. Board. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy. Board. Sweats and the day sweats, pal. Pal, I do.